0: I think that culture is one of the things that can make or break a company because that's the way you operate. It's kind of your operating system, if you will. You have to actually listen to people and let them influence big decisions within the company. It's about creating those fast cycles of iteration where you can release things, test them out, and get the feedback soon, and definitely that increases ownership tenfold. Create the culture of accepting failure as part of the day to day I would never, never underestimate the fact that customers can tell you what are their pain points. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Corn Ferry's
1: Goliath Meet David podcast. I'm your host, John Palumbo, and I'm here with my co host, Cynthia Stuckey from Corn Ferry. Hi, Cynthia. Hey, John. Now, we created this podcast for all you executives out there, especially especially those of you who are Goliaths. They're, you're from big enterprise companies who are interested in learning how those, those Davids, those leaner, more nimble startups and their founders operate, since they've found ways to do things like adapt to change much more naturally and quickly than larger corporations seem to do, um, create cultures that we all admire. Uh, get closer to their customers. They've even found ways to do things more quickly than larger corporations like make decisions and and develop products. So there's there's a lot to admire and learn from these Davids, which is probably why there's so much information out there uh, focused on this topic. The thing is, a lot of a lot of the books and articles and blogs that are that are that are focused on this really bombard you with bullet points or headlines about what you should do to quote unquote, act like a startup. And, and while that's all well and good, we wanted to do things differently. We wanted to speak directly to startup founders and executives and ask them the questions that Goliaths really care about. In fact, a lot of the questions that we're going to ask were submitted to us by Goliaths. So you're going to get the information you really want straight from the horses or, or, the, or in this case, the David's mouths. Um, so for this episode, our David is Elad Wallach. Hi, Elad. Thanks for being here.
0: Hello. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really great to be here.
1: Now, Elad is the CEO of a company called ADOC, and and that's an, it's an innovative healthcare AI startup, which was actually chosen as one of Time Magazine's 50 genius companies. Uh, check out ADOC, A-I-D-O-C.com. And, and what we're going to do, what Cynthia and I are going to do is ask a lot, a bunch of questions about his company and, and his best practices and their strategies across all different areas that Goliaths are really interested in learning. Um, okay, so so let's get started. So, Alad, I think a good way to kick things off would be for you to tell us a bit
0: about your company and your background. Uh, sure, sure, John. Yeah, so it's been uh, it's been a hell of a journey this past, I would say, two and a half years since we started. Uh, obviously when we started with just me and the co-founders, three folks um, based out of Israel. Right now we're uh, 60 people uh, worldwide. Uh, We have headquarters in the US, in Europe, and obviously in Israel focusing on R&D. And what my company does is basically we help solve the bottleneck in medical imaging nowadays. Hmm. So in recent years, there is this huge, huge growth in the number of medical images. I'm talking about x-rays, CTs, MRIs. And the problem is with this explosive growth in the imaging, there was no corresponding growth in the number of physicians, radiologists. And this basically means that nowadays, the big, big bottleneck in a lot of health treatments is imaging Mm -hmm. and getting the imaging results and basically what our company uh, is doing is we basically have an artificial intelligence that we've built that ran on millions of millions of imaging studies and learn to detect what's time critical. So if you're a patient at the hospital and you're getting examined, our AI is constantly running in the background and instead of you waiting for hours for the analysis, if we find something critical like stroke or a bleed, we can then flag it to the physicians, to the radiologists, it basically makes sure you get priority. <laughs> so get treated on time with high quality. I mean, that's fascinating. How, how did I think? I think it's always inspiring and,
1: and interesting to hear, you know, how companies how started up their startup. How, how did you go about starting your company, coming up with the idea?
0: Yeah, um, actually. So let's take a look at at me and my co-founders' background. Sure. We all come from. Um, the world of technology management and AI, but from the Ministry of Defense, uh, actually the Israeli Ministry of Defense. And when we left this, uh, this, I would say, secure uh, environment, we knew we wanted to dive right into starting a startup, but obviously we didn't know anything about healthcare. We were just very passionate about using our skills um, in the healthcare space to help basically people and contribute with the skills we had. So when we started, we basically spent all of our day to day into talking with physicians, talking with radiologists, spending time in the hospital. I think 80% of my time was in a hospital trying to ascertain how physicians and specifically radiologists work. And we use the Lean Startup framework, which basically says you don't really know what you're developing. And the biggest risk for a startup is developing something that nobody needs or wants. So we really focused on that. I would say that the first 12 months of the company was just sitting uh, in hospitals, talking with physicians and trying to understand what is it that would really help drive uh, better care. So, So, yeah, I mean,
1: that's fascinating. So adaptability. Is a, is a core skill that, that's obviously, that's increasingly kind of sought after in workplaces of, of all sizes, right? Since there's such a growing yeah. emphasis on, on flexibility and agility, both, both for companies as well as employees. The thing is that startups, Davids, and their employees seem to embrace and adapt to change much more naturally than, say, big enterprise companies like Goliaths and their
0: employees. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, I would say it's it's for two big, two big reasons that at the end of the day, tie into culture. So one thing in startups is the small team dynamic. It's much, much uh, easier to get all the information necessary to make concrete decisions. Yeah. So as long as you have independent work units that can get all the information into making decisions, I think this allows, uh, startups, which has obviously smaller teams to kind of make those decisions and run ahead faster. <laughs> um, the second big component of this is that in a startup, you're always fighting for your life and get, having this mindset of you constantly have to be iterating, you constantly have to be improving yourself or else the <laughs> startup would fail. Right. So you kind of know that you have to move fast, uh, and this kind of burn the bridge attitude of "I don't have any other choice" is something that really um, is kind of in the background of all of our thinking sure. and
2: decision making. So, so building on that, how how do you go about then creating a company made up of adaptable employees? It's it contains
0: basically creating people with high accountability and high ownership because i think that being adaptable is highly tied into having a very uh, owner oriented mindset and to do this we basically in ADOC we have two big things first of all we screen for that in our interview process so it's super important for us to have people that have this kind of burning passion of making things happen and second, we highly encourage that in our culture, in the day-to-day. People that, you know, stay at the middle of the night to make things happen, you know, we, we congratulate them. We give them all the positive reinforcement. It's just about encouraging this behavior of of taking full accountability for stuff. And that obviously leads towards adaptability because if you have to make something happen, you need to change things for, for that um, it's it, this is the I would say the fire uh, under you that allows you to overcome the
2: hurdles of change. Excellent. And so, so selecting the right people is core to you. And then, h- how do you ensure processes and the policies and structures that business put in place really reinforce this passion and ability to adapt? Um.
0: I would say it's it's about, first of all, having a very open interview process. When we screen people, uh, it's actually a mutual screening process. We want them here to know exactly what we're about, the good and the bad. We have them here for lunch. We have them meeting the people, a broad team, because we understand that the biggest or the safest way to avoid a cultural misfit is if the person that is now interviewing would get to know you and sees that he, would, wouldn't, he wouldn't be a fit. Um, and second is about aligning all of the people during the interview process about what is really important. Uh, passion, adaptability, accountability. So it's aligning everybody, uh, everyone involved in the interview process How do you screen for those qualities? What are the qualities we're searching for? Uh, If you would look in our, I would say in our databases, we actually have kind of huge Excel spreadsheets um, for each candidate we're interviewing for most of our positions with scores about exactly those areas that at least give us, um, at least make sure that every interviewer uh, screens for those qualities, and we get all the opinions from all the people around the table. So,
1: Elad, if, if a company came to you and, and asked you some of the things it could do to better foster adaptability, what do you think you would recommend?
0: What are those highlights? As always in culture, it's about creating the language for talking about this. And when we try to, let's say, encourage ownership within our company, we just talked about this day in, uh, day out, mm-hmm. uh, constantly over, over-communicate cultural changes and create the language for people to make this change. Mm. Because as long as they have the framework in mind, they can make this shift. Uh, second is to create positive reinforcement scenarios where you see the activity that Are created just you know hammer down and you know give hopefully in the public forum uh, give encouragement for the people that act I would say the way you want to enforce and three and that's I would say always important in in startups and in all settings uh, screen the right type of people make sure you know what you want to screen for and and be diligent about it and Accept the fact that you're going to make mistakes, but that you rather make a false – I would say false negative and miss out on a good candidate than having a false positive and getting a candidate inside that doesn't really fit your culture criteria. So so a lot
1: of the Goliaths that are listening to this know – that it can be really easy to let culture slip as as a company gets bigger and bigger. In fact, if you have if you have multiple locations and I know you you do have some. Yeah. Um e- each one can kind of take on its own culture and sometimes no culture ends up being the culture because no one's communicating or nurturing it. So so employees hmm. end up creating one. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what culture means to you and and your company's culture and how that cult- culture is cultivated and maintained at, at ADAC?
0: Yeah, actually, it's a, it's for me it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating concept. And frankly, when I uh, when I left the the Ministry of Defense, uh, in my background, uh, I. Culture was one of the things that stuck out to me as as being super important. And frankly, the background of a lot of the people we have here is similar. So we take people coming from specific origins that we know have a very strong cultural fit, although as you've mentioned, as we grow and as we expand, we kind of assimilate more and more types of cultures within us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that culture is one of the things that can make or break a company because that's the way you operate. It's kind of your operating system, if you will, uh, that uh, can basically determine the pace and velocity you're going to grow at. And to foster culture, for me, it's about uh, it's about a few th- about a few things. First of all, is having this, strong layer of communication within the company and the best way to communicate is actually by providing feedback i believe so it's about creating visibility within processes within tasks within activities and allowing people to communicate about them so it's about having this mentality of challenging each other and communicating about everything uh, don't have silos, so communicate about everything. Mm. And as long as you have those open channels of communication around specific tasks you want to perform, then you can build the culture around that because you have a lot of smart people that kind of try and, and uh, try and find their way around tasks about how they really want to make these things uh, come to fruition. So for me, uh, the biggest way to impact culture is... Transparency and visibility, and then having a culture of communication, and basically uh, uh, pushing uh, pushing yourself into every every possible area, and everyone in the organization can be entitled to give his opinion about basically everything. Sure.
2: You know, we hear often with startup cultures, um, we hear from the Goliaths things like these cultures are innovative, they're passionate, they're result-oriented, there's an energetic vibe, there's a level of collaboration we desire. Um, So how do you maintain that kind of startup culture that has those elements Mm -hmm. as you plan to, you know, how do you, as you get bigger, how do you maintain that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be more and more challenging as we go. And as we have, I would say more, more layers of management, but for me, it all comes down, all of it comes down into, uh, into the ownership mindset. And this means that to create this ownership mindset, you have to actually listen to people and let them influence big decisions within the company big decisions, you're gonna let people that are, I would say, lower down the chain, make an influence about your day to day. If you trust the people, if you come from a mentality of letting them influence whatever, whatever is, no matter how big is this uh, uh, KPI, if you let everyone in the company contribute and take full ownership for their mistakes and successes, then I believe you can start going on this path of creating this passion and ownership mindset, because they are truly owners of what's going to happen within uh, within the organization. So a lot for for a lot of Goliaths,
1: when you say when you say the term lean startup, one of the first things that comes to mind is agility, right? since startups are known for their ability to, to just move more quickly. So, for example, one of the things. That David's like, like, like you do more quickly, and a lot of the a lot of the Goliaths really admire is make decisions, and, and and some would say that maybe your agile decision making is, is due to the fact that maybe there's less red tape, there's fewer checks and approvals, what have you. Can you talk a bit about how your company is able to make decisions
0: quickly? I, I think that's an awesome, awesome question. And actually it all boils down to a mindset we had from the very early days about, about the lean startup and the lean startup takes as its core assumption that there is huge uncertainty in, in what you're doing. So in 90% chance you're going to fail. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a big failure, but you're going to have a wrong assumption about something. And therefore, what you need to do is to maximize your learning speed. And I think startups are really good at identifying what are the core issues they wanna test, what are their core assumptions, and basically throw everything else aside. <laughs> and just keep iterating, keep failing all the time. Basically, what we're doing in our day-to-day is releasing products, releasing features, testing out market, uh, marketing materials, and failing day in, day out. And the more you fail, the more you learn. So it's about, constantly identifying what it is it's most important forget about everything else uh, the one tip that uh, they give in the lean start method is you have to be at least slightly ashamed about the product you're releasing so <laughs> that's exactly what what we're doing we want to understand exactly what are the core assumptions and test them out and continues continue iterating and i think this can be done in every company from the smallest of Davis to the biggest of Goliath. Sure. Uh, it's about this culture of iteration and, and failure. So,
2: so how would you say that agile decision-making then impacts the employee responsibility and accountability they have?
0: Us as humans, we tend to learn much more if there is a clear Uh, action, result, scenario. So I think that the faster changes you can make, the more adaptable you are, people take much more ownership because they understand the ramifications of their actions. So if if you're deciding on a feature, if you're a software developer deciding on a feature and you're gonna release it today, you're definitely gonna have much more ownership on this because you're gonna see the actual results and impact of your activities. So, it's about creating those fast cycles of iteration where you can release things, test them out, and get the feedback
2: soon. And definitely that increases ownership tenfold. Excellent. Thank you. I, I, let me ask a, another question related to agility. Are there any trade offs to make decisions more quickly that you've experienced? For sure. There is a lot, a lot of,
0: um, a lot of waste because if you make so many decisions, you go one direction and then you switch to another. So you obviously have to discard a lot of stuff you worked on. Um, in addition, it, also confuses a lot of people. And as you know, context switching is not always easy, and the more changes you make, the more adaptable you are, the more context switches there are, and therefore the efficiency goes down as well. So you have a lot of waste, you have a lot of inefficiencies, but I believe that as long as you maintain the learning as the core thing you wanna maximize on, so uh, iterating on the assumptions, then that's a sacrifice that I am more than willing to make. And frankly, the things that I regret are almost never testing something and then discarding it, but more about over uh, overworking on something that eventually I had to discard anyway, just because I haven't tested it early enough. Hmm.
1: So this might be a good way to kind of sum sum that this line of questioning up. What advice are you going to give? would you give to a company that wants to accelerate their decision-making process?
0: I would say it's about making sure that first of all, there, there are people that have all the relevant knowledge. So concentrating knowledge at specific individuals that can make those decisions. And second, create the culture of accepting failure as a part of the day to day because if you if you have to make decisions fast, if you want to make decisions fast, you have to accept the fact that you're gonna fail because you've decided with incomplete knowledge or you've just make a rush decision. So we have to accept it that, that okay, I want to accelerate, but I'm gonna have a bigger error rate. And that's fine. Maybe you could talk a little bit about,
1: about your company's approach to product development, innovation and creativity.
0: One thing that I from took the, from the Toyota leadership principles is uh, it's called Genji Genbutsu, but basically it means go out and see for yourself. And I think that's so core into what we're doing. The problem with a lot of the Goliaths is that you have so many different layers between the customers and the people working on the product that it's hard to see the direct impact. Um, there is one Goliath I know very well uh, for example, they had a whole research team that met the product team only once every six months. <laughs> yep. Mm.
1: Yep.
0: What that? What does that make for the creativity of those people? Sure. What does that mean for how are they able to find those kind of creative solutions to to problems? It's about connecting. I would say connecting the dots and making sure that the people are in the field. We have our our development team. You know going to customers, meeting them, being in customer calls, seeing the data about the product. It's about connecting all the people that are responsible for the product development um, into the customer line. I think that is core, 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 and one of the key advantages of startups.
2: Excellent. So so how about the trade-offs then? Do you feel startups, including your own, Are making trade-offs in order to accelerate this product development and innovation cycle? So definitely
0: there is a sacrifice element to it because time is the scarcest of resources and you're losing a lot of it if, for example, you invest in people co- going to customers or being in customer calls, it's investing a lot of their time into not necessarily a directly value add activity. That means they're, you're losing efficiencies, you're spending a lot of your resources on, on, those, on those activities that are not necessarily directly a value add to, to the product. I think the core reason why we startups allow ourselves to do that is because, because of this core assumption that what are we, that we're going to have at least some of our assumptions very wrong. So the fact that you're kind of in this constant uh, war scenario, constantly thinking about, okay, what am I doing right now that I'm not gonna use in three or six months, then you, uh, you uh, over prioritize things like learning and being very close to the field while sacrificing those efficiencies. I think that if you have those areas where you have huge uncertainties, where you're not sure about the value, you're not sure about the need, then you definitely have to prioritize, like startups, the idea of being close, having very short product development cycles, If you're kind of in the, okay, I'm continuing to develop a product that is long into market, I know what I need to do, then fine, you can can have a bit longer cycles, you want to prioritize efficiency and just getting things out the door as fast as possible. But if you don't really know and you have to prioritize effectiveness, then I would say you want to act as startups are by being very close to the field. So, so Elad, let's say a company comes to you and, and asks for
1: advice on how they can accelerate their product development and innovation cycles. What, 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 what would you tell them?
0: Well, first and foremost, uh, adopt agile, uh, agile techniques. Uh, agile software development. Uh, there are a, a lot of those. Not necessarily software development, but agile development cycles. Uh, you have a lot of those different techniques. I think they are extremely powerful and useful, and uh, a lot of smart people thought about those so I would just say th- that would be one very big uh, very big activity mm-hmm. second I would say is connecting the people um, that are working on product development into the field and letting them experience as much as possible what is the impact of their actions because the more they understand the more they can iterate the more they can make um, decisions and the more ownership they feel about the products
2: and as you as you begin to scale up, do you find or do you think it's going to be difficult to maintain this um, agility and the agile approaches you're using?
0: Uh, definitely. And it's going to become tougher and tougher as we scale. As a start right now starting, I would say the growth, the the scale up stage, experiencing triple digit growth uh, every quarter. And this, for me means, that we're gonna have more people and more activities and people are gonna be more and more specialized. So definitely there's gonna be a challenge. And frankly, it's one of the things that I think the most about, uh, I would say keep me up at night, is basically maintaining our dynamic culture while handling this uh, this um, this growth. And the way I think about solving this is about, is through, once again, um, communicating a lot, so creating communication channels, communicating the culture, structuring exactly what's important for us, continuing to screen people through that, uh, and making sure that we maintain this agile product uh, development being close to customer culture. Um, And second is about constantly, I would say, as, as one of the leaders of this organization, constantly trimming called trimming the hedges, understanding where we have areas where we have problematic culture and stopping that on time, understanding where I have a team that potentially is not working how I would want it to operate within ADOC, and then go and find specific solutions to how I can help this team grow and evolve um, in a way that
2: would correspond to how I want ADOC to look like. Great. Some, some Goliaths are facing this challenge of perceived distance. In other words, kind of the team or the group that's ultimately accountable, or responsible for managing customer voice, customer input become very distanced from the customer. And you mentioned some of this earlier as, as organizations grow, From an, for example, a product management or marketing group might work through a sales team, right? That's on the front line talking to the customer, but they're one line behind and they're not able to hear directly. Um, from the customer and get the feedback directly, and they and many then feel somewhat removed from the customer. On the flip side, we hear often these stories about how David stay very close to the customer and the audience, and aren't as challenged with that um, feeling removed, perceived distance. Can you tell us how your company or even members of your leadership team get close to the customer and even experience their feedback firsthand and? and why you believe this is so important. How, is it, how does it impact the business overall?
0: So I, I would start with saying that the way, we, the way we ensure that this happens is by basically prioritizing this within our culture. So this means that everybody in my both management team, or sales team, or product team, we all know that being close to the customers is key and is definitely worth investing the time. Uh, and you know, I I actually ask my people, when is the last time you've been in a site, you've been in a customer, you felt them, just because we all feel it's so so important. You have to have the both courage and and the capability to invest the time and resource into going into the customers, no matter what's your rank within the organization, no matter how much thing you have on the plate, take at least few days every month uh, to visit customers. Just, I, th- I feel that that's crucial into developing uh, products with high velocity. Okay. So
1: building on that a little bit we've all heard this quote from Henry Ford I believe it was who had said if I had asked my customers what they wanted they would have said a faster horse yeah and and there's a lot of startups out there that subscribe to that to that sentiment and believe that customer input while great it could be very limiting right and there's dangers of listening to customers too closely like the tendency to only make incremental rather than really bold improvements what's your stance on that
0: Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I definitely agree. It's very hard for customers to imagine necessarily how the future would look like. I would say that even though you say I'm only limited in my listening to what customers say they want, I would never, never under- miss, underestimate the fact that customers can tell you what are their pain points. And I think that is that is the big insight we had. When I go to a customer, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to listen and do whatever he says, but it means that I'm going to experience, I'm going to have a much better imagination of his experience and his pain points in order that I can come up with solutions to help him solve those. All right. So,
1: one of the things that drives a lot of big enterprise companies out there, a little crazy, is the fact that so many promising candidates just aren't interested in working for their company. I mean, they'd rather work for a startup. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, first of all, it's kind of a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because you have such great people that already come into startups, and, you know, good, great people want to work with other great people. So it's kind of a, a, a cycle feeding itself. You know, people want to work with, uh, with their kind um, also, the other thing that I think is true about startups is this, I would say, this dream of making making a dent in the universe. And I think that people feel the opportunity to actually transform an industry. I think, you know, hmm. you don't get m- many of those opportunities. So when people find those, they're willing to, to bet on one of those if they find it exciting enough.
2: You know, a lot of startup founders claim they don't get too hung up on finding the right person with the most experience when they're looking for the best. They actually kind of believe that hiring effective generalists or candidates with the right attitude. And you've mentioned some of this, right? With the right passion and fit and drive and grit and letting them kind of figure it out when they get there and giving them the right support can be more effective sometimes in situations where there is a lot of uncertainty. Um, is it also certainly beats kind of waiting, right? Six months to find this right person for the right role. Do you kind of subscribe to that approach and that belief?
0: A hundred percent. And I would say that um, I, I'm a first time entrepreneur myself and as well as my, you know, my, uh, my two co-founders. And, you know, initially when we started to build a team, we wanted people with a lot more experience. But it was almost, it was almost uncanny. Like time after time, when we hired for potential, we were very happy. When we hired for experience, uh, there were quite a few, quite a few that kind of failed. And maybe there is something here that actually relates to the to the startup environment, because we have such big change. You know, you, you need to be so adaptable. You need to be so passionate, hardworking, intelligent, that you know, you have such impactful personality traits you need to screen for that it's so hard to find people with all those personality traits and also the right experience within your space. It just becomes like almost an impossible challenge. So you have to pick one or the other. And time and time again, what I found is that people with high potential really make a much bigger impact.
2: So the high potential, the right motivation, the right traits far more ways for you right now, that experience. Yes. Yep. And, and how does your company then continue to invest and grow in its employees? So you spent the time to find the right people. What are you doing now to keep it, to grow those and invest in them? So first of
0: all, it's something that we actually invest quite a lot in, uh, especially at, uh, I would say at uh, management levels. So it's about first of all a tool that we find very effective is finding external mentors for almost every I would say every senior member in the company. I myself, as the CEO, I have two or three mentors that I you know work with on almost a, I wouldn't say a daily basis, but definitely a touch base with them to kind of as a sounding board uh, once a week. And most of my management team have similar individuals. So it's about maintaining this mindset of, doesn't really matter how experienced you are, you still have so much to learn. And the more smart people you have around the table, uh, the better. So that's one very effective method we're using for uh, developing talent. The other is actually something that is um, much simpler. But it's we think together about almost everything. So there are almost no, I would say, no strategic activities that people work on alone. Um, they all constantly use others as sounding boards, as advice, you know, thought partners, um, mentors, uh, monitors, whatever is needed for that specific activity. And I believe that this helps people reach so much of their potential because. Sometimes you don't need the most experienced person checking your work. You just need to kind of show it to someone else and help him, uh, help him think with you, and more times than not, disagree with you. And the fact of the disagreement, the contention, the uh, confrontation, actually helps both sides grow. So, so like alliances are,
1: are traditionally um, disappointed. When employees move on and go to other companies, they expect, they, they really, a lot of them expect long term loyalty. However, a lot of startups seem to expect this employee mobility. Let's call it this nomadic mindset, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially from, from the millennial workforce. So, some even regard regard it as a competitive advantage in attracting and nurturing new talent. So for example, someone might move on from their company and land uh, maybe a more senior role uh, at, at another company, at even a more well-known one, and the startup they left will use this when recruiting. Hey, we had employees that moved on and <laughs> now work for X, Y, and Z. So, so that being said, you know some startups would advise big enterprise companies to, to not worry as much about cultivating long-term loyalty and focus uh, focus more on their employees' long-term personal success by helping them build their resumes through exciting new opportunities within the company. What's your stance on employee mobility or this nomadic mindset? And, and what would your advice be for the Goliaths that expect that long-term loyalty?
0: Um, so w- once again, I, I may, may surprise you a bit, but I'm actually uh, a big uh, proponent of, uh, of mutual loyalty, um, between companies and employees. Look, I don't think it's you know it's an engagement or a marriage, but I, I think there is something magical about about the capability of trust for the long-term relationship and investing it with each other. And I think that startups have the capability to offer, uh, you know, if they're if they're exciting enough and you know growing fast enough. I think we we have exciting opportunities to offer, and I, I'm actually. We actually screen people that tell us that are not going to be here for at least a few years. Hmm. Um, and I think that this fosters a familial culture within the company because we're all in here together. Kind of we're trusting each other that, you know, we're going to support each other in the hard times, and the good times. You know, we're, we're, we're in this um, in this journey together. And I think that the big companies can actually foster such um such loyalty as well. And it requires a lot of work. It's required, once again, it's screening for it, developing such a culture, supporting your employees, actually, and having, you know, like a family, having this kind of of open conversations and about wanting to them succeed and grow within your organization. Um, But I think it is realistic to create a culture where loyalty is is expected and the norm.
1: Well, a lot, thank you, so much for for the time, information, all all this inspiration. I mean, we really appreciate you being one of our Davids today. We we uh, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, it's been incredible, a lot, and thank you for really sharing your journey with us and some of the things that you've learned along the way. For sure, uh, thank you both, John and Cynthia.
0: It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Always fun to talk about these things. And for those of you listening.
1: We hope that this was as inspiring for you as it was for us and and you're able to take some of the strategies and approaches and advice uh, that Alad provided and, and apply that to your business or to your company. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it.